Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. It is often said that money is the root of all evil. Whether in the relentless pursuit of wealth or driven by desperation to maintain it, individuals can find themselves committing unimaginable acts. The Roseboro family seemed to possess everything one could desire, a blissful marriage, a nice home, and a thriving business worth millions. During weekends, Michael and Jan Roseboro frequently spent quality time in their backyard with their children, engaging in activities such as swimming or simply enjoying each other's company. Nevertheless, appearances can be deceiving. Some who live a life of luxury are never content, and they are willing to do anything to get what they want. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead. Welcome to Episode 90 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. This is the penultimate episode of Season 3. The Roseboro Funeral Home, located in Denver, Pennsylvania, has remained within the Roseboro family for over a century. It was founded by Harry M. Mellinger, and by 2008, his great-grandson, Michael Roseboro, assumed the role of director. His father, Ralph Roseboro, was the current owner after taking it over from his late father, Louis Roseboro. Michael Roseboro had been married to Jan Binkley for the past 19 years. Jan hailed from the Binkley family, which also held deep roots in the northeastern part of the county. Born on July 2, 1963, 
Jan grew up in a single-family property situated at 107 West Main Street in Reinholds, Pennsylvania. Reinholds is a serene town nestled in the wooded hills of northeast Lancaster County. It's characterized by its modest residences, a fire station, and a handful of businesses lining the winding section of Route 897. The Binkley family home on West Main Street was a simple brick Cape Cod-style dwelling set on 2.72 acres of land. Jan graduated from Cacalico High School in 1981 and subsequently earned her degree from Penn State University in 1985. After her marriage to Michael Roseborough, they settled down and had four children, Samuel, Rachel, Noah, and Stella. In March of 2008, they acquired Jan's childhood home on West Main Street from her parents. Over the following months, they invested both time and resources to transform it into the ideal family abode. They added a modern extension, demolished an outbuilding, and created a swimming pool and patio in the rear yard. The funeral business was thriving, and Michael earned over $400,000 a year, allowing them to make whatever changes were necessary and whatever changes they wanted. Michael and Jan Roseboro were devout Christians and active members of Faith United Lutheran Church in Denver. Those who knew Jan fondly described her as a warm and compassionate woman, known for her love of the outdoors and her dedication to environmental causes. Above all, Jan was a devoted mother, wholeheartedly involved in her children's various activities, from swimming to lacrosse. She even served as the president of the East Cacalico Swim Team Parent Board. Kathy Hess, who also served on the board, said of Jan, She was a wonderful person. There's not too much more you can say about her, other than she's one of the nicest people I've ever met. The Roseboro family were familiar faces in the neighborhood that they called home. They always made an effort to wave and greet their neighbors, and appeared to be the perfect family. On the weekends, the family could often be seen in the backyard, swimming in the swimming pool, or just lounging underneath the sun. As neighbor Courtney Rolinsky recalled, they seemed like a really nice couple. They seemed like they were always having fun playing around the pool. It was a warm summer night in Reinholds on July 22, 2008. It had just turned 11 o'clock when emergency services received a phone call. It was from Michael Roseboro. 911. Uh, everyone wipes this drowned. I'm sorry? Everyone wipes this drowned. Okay. And, and what happened? I had gone to bed about an hour and a half ago, and she was outside, and, and I came out, and I saw the lights just go on the pool, but, um, oh, God, the torches are still on. In a surprisingly calm tone, Michael said his wife had drowned in their backyard swimming pool. He explained that he had woken up and found that the swimming pool light was switched on. According to Michael, he went outside to turn it off and found Jan dead in the swimming pool. Is she breathing? No, she's not. Is she still in the water? No, I pulled her out. 
Okay, do you want to try to start CPR on her? I will, 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 yeah. Okay, do you want to need help to do that? I can give you instructions on what to do. I, 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 I was lifeguard. I, I know. Right, I, I can walk you through it if you want help. As, as I, I want to get her out of the pool. What's that? I want to get her out of the pool. You saw, is she still in the pool? I, I, I thought you said she was out of the pool. I, oh, my God. She's, I'm sorry. She's out of the pool. I, yeah, help me through it, please. Okay, you, so she is out of the pool? Yeah. Okay, what I want you to do, is there anybody else there? My, my children are asleep. How old are your children? 12, 9, and 6. Okay. What we need to do is get her on her back. Yes, sir. Okay. You have her flipped over onto her back? She's on her back, yes. Okay. I want you to check and see if she has a pulse. Do you know how to do that? I do. Okay. There's, there's no pulse. There is none? There is none. With urgency, the 911 operator guided Michael through performing CPR, while paramedics and law enforcement swiftly rushed to the scene. Among them, Corey Showalter, an emergency medical technician, was the first to arrive, sirens blaring in the night. Upon reaching the back gate, he encountered Michael kneeling beside Jan, who lay motionless by the poolside. Corey recalled, When I pulled in, he stood up and backed away. He just backed away toward the house. Corey approached Jan and began performing CPR. She was lying fully clothed by the edge of the pool, soaking wet and unconscious. Several minutes later, Officer Michael Firestone pulled up outside the Roseboro home. He ran to the side gate and the illumination from the swimming pool lights and outside light allowed him to see Corey working on Jan. As he got closer, he saw Michael standing nearby smoking a cigarette and making phone calls to family. While Corey continued trying to save Jan's life, Officer Firestone took a cursory look around the swimming pool. He observed a cell phone and a pair of eyeglasses that were in the deep end. He also spotted two small stones, but didn't see any evidence of any kind of struggle. Despite several minutes of relentless resuscitation attempts, Jan remained unresponsive. She was swiftly transported to the Afrida Community Hospital, approximately eight miles away. The attending physician assessed her condition and concluded that further resuscitative efforts were in vain. Jan was declared dead. Jan Roseboro's body was transported to the medical examiner's office where an autopsy was performed by Dr. Dwayne K. Ross. His initial expectation was a straightforward examination, attributing the cause of death to drowning. However, it quickly became apparent that Jan's death was far more intricate than he initially surmised. He found evidence of multiple blunt force trauma to Jan's head and body, almost as if she had been kicked or beaten. Jan had also been struck behind the left ear with a tool stamped with an L mark. There was additional evidence that Jan had been manually strangled as well. Dr. Ross found evidence of freshwater drowning, indicating that Jan had been brutally beaten and then placed in the water to drown. Jan's cause of death would be multiple traumatic injuries combined with drowning. 
It couldn't be determined whether it was the drowning or the beating that was the primary cause of Jan's death, but her death was classified as a homicide. District Attorney Craig Stedman announced to the public that local police and a team of detectives were devoted to uncovering who killed Jan. He also said that her murder was believed to be the very first in West Cacalico Township history. He then warned, There is no question that there is a murderer in our community. People should take precautions and report anything suspicious. We've committed a lot of resources to this, and we're going to continue to work on this. Back at the Roseboro family's home, detectives were interviewing Michael. Curiously, they noticed that he had multiple scratches near his mouth and a fresh cut on his left hand. Michael recounted the events of the day. According to his account, he had been swimming with his children in their backyard from about 5 p.m. until 9 p.m. He said that Jan was lounging by the swimming pool, but she refrained from joining them. At about 9.15 p.m., the children went inside and went to bed, while he and Jan stayed outside chatting by the pool. At 9.30, Samuel left with two friends to stay overnight at one of their homes. Around 10 p.m., Michael decided to call it a night. He informed detectives that Jan had expressed her intention to stay outside a bit longer, prompting him to head indoors alone. After settling into bed, Michael was awakened approximately an hour later, feeling the need to use the restroom. It was during this moment that he noticed the pool lights were still illuminated. He ventured outside to switch them off. As he approached the swimming pool, he found Jan submerged in the deep end. According to Michael, it looked as though Jan had slipped and hit her head and fell into the water. Detective Keith Neff took the opportunity to inform Michael about the injury found on Jan's head. He recalled, I told him the amount of pressure and force necessary to cause such a mark. Michael's reaction was surprisingly devoid of curiosity or concern as he replied, Oh, okay. Detective Neff asked Michael whether he had any questions about what had happened to Jan, and he responded, No. Detectives quickly began harboring suspicion regarding Michael's account of events. The scratches and cuts to his hands and face became a focal point of their investigation, prompting them to swiftly obtain a search warrant. Just two days after Jan was pronounced dead, they returned to the family home, determined to press on with their inquiry. Their objective was twofold, to ascertain whether Jan had been attacked inside or outside of the property, and to collect evidence that could point to a suspect or person of interest. Michael had asserted that he had been apart from Jan for merely an hour before discovering her lifeless body in the pool. This indicated a narrow, one-hour window for any potential intruder to carry out the attack. Upon their arrival at the home, detectives scoured the premises for clues. They found no indications of forced entry at any of the doors. Inside the house, there were no signs of a struggle, further complicating the narrative. Turning their attention outdoors, detectives meticulously examined the swimming pool and its immediate vicinity, but uncovered no traces of blood. This was perplexing, given the significant head injury Jan had sustained, 
which would typically result in substantial bleeding. As their search continued, detectives stumbled upon a bucket containing a rag and a liquid emitting a distinct pine sol odor, a common cleaning agent. This discovery prompted them to formulate a theory that the perpetrator had utilized the bucket and cleaning agent to sanitize the crime scene. They collected water samples from the swimming pool, as well as other cleaning supplies found both inside and outside the home. Inside the house, they collected the family's computer to be sent away to be examined. They additionally collected some of Michael's clothing and shoes and searched for a potential murder weapon. Detectives speculated that the killer had caused the injury to the back of Jan's head while inside the property, then placed her in the swimming pool to die. They just needed to figure out who was responsible and why. In an effort to find out more about the movements of Michael and Jan Roseborough that night, detectives spoke with their neighbors. A couple of them shared a peculiar observation. On the evening that Jan died, the customary exterior lights that automatically illuminated the pool had been switched off shortly after 10 p.m. The pool area had a built-in system to activate the lights at dusk and keep them on until dawn. This detail piqued the detectives' interest. They theorized that Jan's killer had intentionally switched the light off to dump Jan's body in the swimming pool and then clean up any blood. Detective Keith Neff commented, Only a resident who would want this to appear as an accidental drowning would have the incentive to clean up the scene. The interviews continued, leading the detectives to Cassandra Pope. She recounted hearing a brief but unmistakable woman's scream emanating from the Roseboro's backyard shortly before 10.30 p.m., Although it lasted for just a few seconds, it resonated loudly enough for her to take notice. As suspicions continued to mount, the prevailing theory among the detectives pointed toward Jan's husband, Michael, as the prime suspect. They found it highly unusual that he never once inquired about the circumstances of his wife's death. Throughout the ongoing investigation, he never reached out to the detectives to check on the progress of their inquiries. Michael was duly informed that he had become the focal point of suspicion in his wife's murder. During another interview, Detective Neff told Michael they needed an explanation for how Jan had died. Without displaying any emotion, Michael replied, I don't have one. Detectives continued their investigation, but they weren't the only ones suspicious of Michael. When Jan's loved ones, including her siblings, gathered at the home, they couldn't help but notice his demeanor. He appeared to be quiet, calm, and complacent, and when the conversation turned to catching Jan's killer, Michael walked away. While the investigation at the family home was still in progress, news of Jan Roseborough's death transcended the boundaries of Reinholds. Reinholds was a town known for its tranquil charm, and it had never before witnessed a single murder, so this had come as a massive surprise. Glenn Berkey, who had lived there over four decades, commented, Nothing like this happens around here. I've lived here my whole life. It's always been quiet. Within the community, a sense of apprehension took hold, 
with some fearing the presence of a lurking opportunistic killer among their neighbors. Meanwhile, others harbored suspicions that the perpetrator might be much closer to home, a notion the family vehemently denied. Reverend Larry Hummer, the pastor at Faith United Lutheran Church, conveyed the family's astonishment at how the murder was being portrayed. It was abundantly clear that detectives had their sights set on Michael as the primary suspect in his wife's murder. While he was speaking with detectives, other family members weren't so forthcoming, although they didn't disclose who. District Attorney Stedman commented in the media, It's puzzling to us as to why, after this murder takes place, that their loved ones, presumably their loved ones, that they would decline to cooperate with investigators in our attempt to solve this brutal murder. While detectives continued in their investigation, a worship memory service was held in honor of Jan. The Swamp Evangelical Lutheran Church in Reinholds witnessed a gathering of hundreds of mourners as they assembled to pay their respects. The solemn service was presided over by Reverend Larry G. Hummer, who led with dignity and compassion. At the altar, white lilies adorned the scene, and attendees were handed remembrance cards featuring a photo of Jan on the front. Most of the mourners sat on folded chairs while others stood in the rear vestibule. Reverend Hummer told the mourners that Jan loved all creation, particularly the ocean. In a composed manner, he stated, We grieve the all-too-short life of a wonderful woman. Jan had a zest for life. Jan will be remembered for the example she set. Media gathered outside the church, but mourners were reluctant to speak. However, Sean Roseborough, Michael's cousin, stated, If he weren't a member of the family, I could only imagine what I'd think. Sean then spoke on Talkback, the Lancaster newspaper's online forum. He expressed his frustration over the press coverage of the case and said that they had missed some aspects of the story. Sean lamented the fact that no coverage had mentioned how Michael has been there for his children. He then added, Nobody looked at how close the family is and how difficult it is to be under a cloud of suspicion in such a close community. Sean also commented on how the dramatic nature of the crime could potentially be damaging the family's funeral business and their reputation. Reverend Hummer also came to the family's defense and criticized District Attorney Stedman for telling the media that some members of the family were not cooperating with the investigation. He stated, It's not that they don't want to cooperate, it's that they can't. He said the family hadn't even had enough time to absorb what had happened. District Attorney Stedman responded to the comments and said that detectives knew how to be professional and respectful of the family's loss. He said that despite this, they needed to remain mindful that there was a killer at large in the community. He added, And it's possible the Roseboro family can help lead us to the person who killed Jan Roseboro. After the evidence was collected at the Roseboro family home, it was sent to be thoroughly examined. When the computer was examined, it revealed that despite giving off the appearance of marital bliss to outsiders, the Roseboros were extremely unhappy. In the seven weeks leading up to Jan's murder, 
Michael had engaged in an extramarital affair with a woman named Angela Funk. They had met at a local convenience store where they kept bumping into each other. These chance meetings swiftly evolved into sexual liaisons characterized by countless phone calls and emails. While detectives were trying to establish a sequence of events for the 22nd of July, the night Jan was killed, they spoke with Angela. Angela was a married mother, but she and Michael had been planning to leave their respective partners so that they could be together. There had been talks about wedding locations and what dress Angela would wear and how she would style her hair. She said that over the course of those seven weeks, they had sex at the funeral home and in hotels and rented apartments. During one of their encounters, Angela had expressed her concerns to Michael, suggesting that if Jan were to discover the affair, she could potentially claim a substantial portion of their assets during divorce proceedings, possibly even taking control of the funeral business. In response, Michael disclosed his plan to place the business in his father's name as a precautionary measure. When the Roseboros went on vacation to Niagara Falls in June of 2008, Angela had fears about Michael and Jan rekindling their relationship. She wrote, I'm scared to death of losing you. Michael tried to reassure her, telling her, I will do whatever it takes to make you my wife. I love you so much. You are the one I want to grow old with. The following month, on July 17th, Michael wrote to Angela, I love thinking about our future because it will be a reality soon. Angela replied, I always wondered what it would be like to be your wife. I guess I won't have to wonder too much longer. During her interview with detectives, Angela shockingly revealed that she was pregnant and that the baby may have been Michael's. She was due to give birth in April 2009. Angela said to detectives that on the day of Jan's murder, she had been with Michael having sex at an apartment between 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. You guys had sexual relations? Tuesday. Okay. July 22nd? Yeah. And where was that at? Yeah, June. Tuesday afternoon. Do you know about what time that was? We left there around 5. So between 4 and 5? Mm -hmm. When he was up there at one, actually. And then two. Two. He came up around two. Oh, were you there at two o'clock? Mm -hmm. Okay. So from two to five on Tuesday, yeah. he was with you. Yeah. Michael told Angela that he was planning on revealing their affair to Jan later that night, but was going to wait until their children went to bed. Afterward, Michael returned home to his family, but Angela was still on his mind. From home, he sent her an email which read, I am so deeply, madly, and completely in love with you, baby. I have never experienced feelings like this in all of my 41 years, and I know the best is yet to come. According to Angela, at approximately 7 o'clock that night, Michael called her. He told her again that he was planning on leaving Jan so they could be together and get married. He called her once more at around 8.45 p.m. Did you hear from him again on Tuesday night? Yes, about quarter nine. And I, the only reason I know that is because I checked what time he called me on my cell phone. 
It was about, it was 843, I think, on that side. Okay. Where was he calling you from? From his house. What was he doing, did, did he say? No, he was, you sometimes he would be in the basement and he'd call. His wife? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know, I didn't, I don't ask. Okay. I don't know. Mm, so you don't know if he no. was home now? I have no idea. But he called you from his basement? Mm -hmm. I assume. I don't know where he was, oh, but that's okay. where he normally called me. Okay. Sometimes the bedroom, I have no idea. To be honest with you, I didn't okay. ask. Okay. What did he say in that conversation? What did he call for? He just to hear my voice and talk, talk about how much we love each other. And I mean, basically, there wasn't anything significant. He said, I'm just exhausted. He says, I'm going to bed. He says, I'm exhausted. And he sounded tired. He sounded really tired. Detectives then obtained a search warrant for the computers at the Roseboro Funeral Home. As per the search warrant request, it is reasonable to believe that Roseboro would have been less likely to use the shared household computer, which was accessible by the victim and the four children, and more likely to use his work email. From this computer, they found even more emails from Michael to Angela. In one sent to Angela on July 15th, Michael wrote, I can't live without you in my life. I need to make you my wife, and I need to be your husband. I have never been so sure of anything in my life. In another email sent July 17th, Michael wrote, I dream about seeing you in your wedding dress every day. We say our vows and profess our love to each other. Then we kiss. It's a kiss unlike any other we've shared. And I know that as beautiful as my dreams are, they will pale in comparison to the reality of us joining together as one, becoming us. I love you, Angela. I can't wait to make you my wife. The revelation of Michael's affair sent shockwaves through the community, prompting Jan's sister, Susan Van Zant to confront him about his actions. In response, Michael initially attempted to downplay the situation by claiming he wasn't having an affair. Instead, he contended that Angela was assisting him in planning a ceremony to renew his wedding vows with Jan. However, Susan remained skeptical and unconvinced by this explanation. After continued pressure, Michael eventually relented and admitted to the affair. He expressed genuine concern that the exposure of the affair could have severe repercussions for Angela's own marriage. Susan demanded to know what happened, telling Michael, I want justice for my sister. Who did this? Michael never responded. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. On August 3rd, Michael Roseborough was arrested in connection with Jan's murder. In announcing the arrest, District Attorney Stedman said, There's evidence provided by the girlfriend that he had a motive to kill his wife. He had an opportunity to kill his wife, and he took that opportunity. District Attorney Stedman asked the community to give Angela some privacy and reminded them that she was a real person who had come forward with important information. Detectives and the prosecution built a theory that Michael had told Jan about the affair and said he was leaving her. They speculated that the revelation sparked a confrontation between Michael and Jan, which resulted in her murder. They said it was unlikely that an intruder knew to switch the outside lights off and then switch them back on in time for the paramedics and officers as they arrived. The next day, Michael was charged with the murder of Jan. He was ordered to be held in Lancaster County Prison without bail. District Attorney Stedman announced that he hadn't yet decided whether he was seeking the death penalty or not. Michael's arrest hadn't come as much of a surprise to the Roseboro's neighbors. One of them, Greg Townley, said that he suspected Michael's involvement from the very start. He commented, Even though it seemed pretty obvious, you still don't know for sure. Greg's wife, Jessica, also chimed in. She said that Michael appeared to have a bad temper. If he's having an affair and she finds out, you would hope the next step would not be killing somebody. In a way, some of the community were relieved by the news. Tara McFarland commented, I've never been scared around here. I've never been afraid to walk around here. The fact it wasn't a stranger breaking into a house, that makes a difference in the community's ability to move on. The day after the charges were filed, Michael Roseboro's defense attorney, Alan Sadomsky, asserted his client's innocence. Due to the large number of inquiries that our office has received from the media, we thought it best to make one statement to to prevent misinterpretation or confusion about our position. Contrary to published reports and widespread speculation, Michael Roseborough did not kill his wife. In fact, upon finding her in their family pool, Michael did everything in his power to seek medical assistance and revive his wife. Despite rumors of marital discord, Michael and Jan were married for 19 years and had four children. It goes without saying that this tragedy has deeply devastated Michael and his children. 
being separated from his children has made the situation even worse. It was mentioned that Michael intended to launch his own investigation to counter the homicide charge brought against him. According to his defense attorney, the true motive behind the incident was robbery. He alleged that $40,000 worth of jewelry was missing from Jan's body when it was returned to the family, including rings, a necklace, and other items. While Michael's defense team argued that robbery was the motive, Michael himself did not report anything missing. District Attorney Stedman responded to these claims, saying, What's important to remember here is that we have a mother of four who has been murdered. This office and East Cacalico Township Police are dedicated to ensuring that the person responsible is held accountable for his choices and his actions, and will do that in a proper court of law. We are certainly open to Mr. Sadomsky providing the conclusions of what his team of experts and professionals are able to generate. The following month, a preliminary hearing took place, and Michael was ordered to stand trial for Jan's murder. Prosecutors decided not to seek the death penalty against him because the circumstances of the case did not meet the criteria for the death penalty in Pennsylvania. District Attorney Stedman explained that Jan's murder did not fit any of the 18 aggravated circumstances that would allow them to seek the death penalty. These circumstances are outlined in the criminal code and include factors such as the murder of a child, a public service officer, a pregnant woman, or a witness in a felony case, as well as killings for hire, ransom, or those involving torture and defendants with prior felony convictions. In March of the following year, prosecutors obtained a search warrant to collect a blood sample from both Michael and Angela. This was done to establish DNA evidence to determine if Michael was indeed the father of Angela's unborn baby. Meanwhile, Michael remained hopeful that his counsel would secure his acquittal when the time came. He reached out to Angela from jail and assured her, I don't want you to give up on us. Um, I haven't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because I won't. Okay. And I totally plan on being out of here in August. <laughs> Let's hope so. I know. And I am so proud of you, the way you're handling yourself. Thank you. And handling everything. It's just... It's just best I don't say anything. It's nobody's business. I know. I don't care what they put in the paper about me. I really don't. But it's it's my family. Right. It's my children. It's you and the girls that are being affected. I know. It's just, that's beside the point. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. God, I hear your voices. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. I will call again. Michael Roseborough's murder trial was scheduled for July 2009 and was anticipated to be one of the most high-profile trials the area had ever seen. Before then, Angela gave birth to a healthy baby boy. Testing proved that Michael was the father. Michael and Angela chatted on the phone about their new son. How's everything going? It's going all right. Um, it's tough, but it's going okay. How's, how's Matthew doing? He's doing wonderful. He's a great baby. I gave my attorney some pictures for you to see. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he looks just like you. <laughs> That's what Alan told me. Yeah, he is a spitting image of you. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> I don't have, think it's that bad. You don't have a chance. No, it's not bad at all. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So good to hear your voice. <laughs> 
In the days preceding the trial, Reinholtz was abuzz with discussions about Jan's murder and Michael's potential involvement. At the local convenience store, Clerk Harry Patel remarked, This is a small town. Everybody knew who he was. We sell a lot of papers when he's in them. Reverend Hummer had retired from Faith United Evangelical Lutheran Church shortly after Michael was arrested. However, he continued to maintain contact with both the church and the community. He shared his insights, saying, Feelings about the case have sort of declined over the months, but now again, with the impending trial, people are starting to talk again. He acknowledged that it was challenging for those who had sat alongside the Roseboro family and church for years to come to terms with the tragic murder. By the 12th of July, jury selection was almost complete. On that morning, Michael Roseboro, escorted in handcuffs, took his place alongside his defense team in the courtroom. His mother, Anne, struggled to hold back tears as she observed through the narrow rectangular window of the door. Due to being subpoenaed by the prosecution, she wasn't allowed to enter the courtroom until called to testify. Speaking to the Sunday News, she stated, I know he's innocent. He told me he was. I know murder wouldn't be an option for my son. The following day marked the commencement of the murder trial. The courtroom was filled to the brim as curious onlookers jostled to get a seat. During opening statements, District Attorney Craig Stedman presented their theory that Michael had killed Jan in order to be with Angela without the complications of a messy divorce that could see Jan take a considerable amount of his fortune. He conveyed to the jury, This case is about lies, about betrayal. Of course, it's about murder, and it's about obsession. He asserted that Michael's obsession with Angela drove him to commit murder. He emphatically declared, It is sick. It is twisted. He then proceeded to read one of Michael's numerous emails to Angela, which read, I will do whatever it takes to make you my wife. He attacked the defense's claims, stating, Random killers walking around looking for some housewife who happens to be sitting outside her pool by herself wearing $40,000 worth of jewelry at 10.30 at night? You know, incredibly absurd. In contrast, defense attorney Alan Sadomsky informed the jury that there was no murder weapon and no concrete evidence linking Michael to his wife's murder. He admitted that Michael had engaged in an affair, stating, there was lots of lustful banter, and yes, sexual liaisons. Sadomsky contended that at the time of Jan's murder, Michael was in bed asleep. He accused detectives of hastily focusing on Michael as their primary suspect and said, and from that point forward, they tried to make the pieces fit. After the opening statements, Officer Michael Firestone, the first prosecution witness, took the stand. He had been the initial responder on the night of Jan Roseboro's murder. He informed the jury that, as paramedics desperately worked to save Jan's life, Michael did not approach or ask any questions. Following Officer Firestone's testimony, the next witness was Corey Showalter, an emergency medical technician. Showalter recounted that upon his arrival and seeing Michael kneeling beside Jan, he noticed that Michael was not engaged in CPR. District Attorney Stedman inquired whether Michael had approached him or inquired about Jan, 
To which Showalter replied, no, I didn't hear him say anything. Michael Texter, a friend of the Roseboro son Samuel, was also called to the stand. He stated he had been at their house that night, arriving around 9.30 p.m. He testified that Jan and Michael were outside by the swimming pool. He further testified that he and Samuel left the house around 10.10 p.m., 25 minutes later than the time he had initially told detectives they had departed. District Attorney Stedman expressed frustration with the inconsistency and suggested that the defense team's private investigator may have influenced Texter's testimony. He asked Michael Texter, You don't want him to be convicted of murder, do you? Texter responded, No, no one would. He's a nice guy. The jury then heard from Jan's brother and sister, Susan and Brian Binkley. They provided testimony about Michael's calm demeanor following Jan's murder. Susan's daughter-in-law, Melissa Van Zandt, also testified that Michael appeared stoic and emotionless and never expressed grief over Jan's death. Melissa's daughter, Allison, informed the jury about Michael's chain smoking and heavy drinking in the days following Jan's murder. The testimony then shifted to Michael's affair with Angela. Corporal James Strasser, a police computer expert, read aloud excerpts from the 200-plus emails confiscated from their computers. Throughout the course of their affair, Michael and Angela had communicated 1,425 times by telephone, exchanged 1,068 text messages, and exchanged at least 200 emails. Karen Tobias, a close friend of Jan's, delivered a compelling testimony about a letter penned by Michael while he was incarcerated in Lancaster County Prison. In the letter he had written, tell everybody that Jan had an affair six months before. According to Michael, he had been the one striving to salvage their marriage, even planning to renew their wedding vows. He confided in Karen that he intended to end things with Angela and try to reconcile with Jan. The letter continued, I never got to apologize to Jan. I miss her so badly. I can't believe anyone would try and hurt her. However, Karen testified that she had no inkling of Jan ever having an affair and doubted the accuracy of Michael's claim. Another friend of Jan's, Rebecca Donahue, echoed this sentiment, declaring, I don't know when on God's green earth she could have had the time. While Michael alleged that Jan had an affair before him, detectives had uncovered another affair from back in 2003 when Michael had been involved with another woman. Jan had discovered this affair through their family's phone bills, leading to its termination after Michael's father issued an ultimatum to sever ties with the woman or face a reduction in his share of the funeral home profits. The jury then heard several phone calls Michael had made to Angela from behind bars, professing her love and expressing optimism that he would be acquitted. In another phone call, Michael told Angela that he had received around 500 cards and letters of support. The focus of the trial then shifted to Jan on the day of the murder. Michael's defense asserted that a stranger had killed her to steal her jewelry, claiming she wore around $40,000 worth of jewelry every day. However, this assertion was contradicted by Lori Souter, Jan's high school classmate, 
and manager at the Fulton Bank and Reinholds. She noted that Jan had not been wearing any jewelry when she visited the bank hours before her death. The next day, the courtroom fell silent as Angela Funk took the witness stand. While just three months earlier she was professing her love to him via jailhouse phone call, she had seemingly had a change of heart. In a calm and collected tone, she said, If he's guilty, he's guilty. If he's not, he's not. She answered questions from District Attorney Stedman in a defiant manner, mostly replying, I don't remember, or I don't know. Angela's husband, Randall Funk, sat in the public gallery. He had earlier testified that on the night of the murder, she was at home with him. When the district attorney asked her, he's not your future anymore, Angela replied, no. She confirmed that she told Michael over the phone that she wouldn't give up on them, but said she had since had a change of heart. District Attorney Stedman said to Angela that both she and Michael expected that Jan would uncover the affair when the next phone bill arrived. He said, It's pure coincidence that on the day Angela told Michael they wouldn't have to wait much longer to be together, then hours later she's murdered? Angela replied and said it was just a coincidence. While Angela had told detectives that when Michael called her on the night Jan was killed, he said he was leaving Jan so they could be together. On the witness stand, however, she claimed he called her to say he was going to bed. Angela and her husband, Randall, had decided to try and work on their marriage. The prosecution then called on DNA expert Sabine Panzer-Kalin, who had examined a number of items from the crime scene. Underneath Jan's fingernails on her left hand, she found evidence of 12 of 16 DNA characteristics matching Michael's DNA. When he was first interviewed immediately after Jan's death, detectives observed numerous scratches to his face and on his left hand. Underneath the fingernails of Jan's right hand, she found red-brown staining. Dr. Wayne K. Ross then testified about Jan's cause of death. He stated, Drowning is a good way to hide a murder. He said that the beating would not have caused Jan to lose consciousness, but it would have hurt like anything. He also said that the arteries on Jan's neck were damaged, indicating she had been strangled, but in a way that left no visible marks. He suggested that Jan was either unconscious from the strangling or was held underwater until she drowned. He also considered the possibility that Jan regained consciousness, which caused her killer to slam her head against the side of the swimming pool. After more than two weeks of prosecution testimony, the defense began arguing their case. They called on Dr. Neil Hoffman, who performed a second autopsy on Jan. He agreed that Jan had been beaten and strangled and then drowned, but offered a different scenario. He said that the killer or killers punched Jan repeatedly on top of her head and then struck her with some kind of object. He testified, there were multiple impacts, not necessarily the same source at the same time. The defense also called on the Roseboro's son, Samuel, who said, I know my dad would not do that. He couldn't kill my mother. Michael was given the opportunity to testify on his own behalf, but ultimately he decided against it. During closing arguments, District Attorney Stedman said he had presented a mountain of evidence against Michael that proved his guilt 
way beyond a reasonable doubt. Defense attorney Sadomsky, on the other hand, said that the evidence presented did not prove that Michael had killed Jan. He said to the jury, All you need is one person, one person who can change a verdict. The jury deliberated for less than five hours before returning with a verdict. They found Michael Roseboro guilty of the murder of Jan Roseboro. As the verdict was announced, Michael didn't show any emotion. He was asked whether he wanted to make a statement, to which he bluntly replied, no. Michael Roseboro was handed an automatic sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Judge James P. Cullen allowed Michael to make a statement, but all he offered was, I disagree with the jury's decision, but I respect it. Jan's family opted out of making a statement, but District Attorney Stedman had a couple of words. What stands out to me is the selfishness and selflessness of this crime. This murder should not have happened. We should not be here. He was extremely fortunate to marry a woman who everyone loved and liked. He stripped four children of their mother, and that is unforgivable. He then spoke of Michael's giddy tone as he spoke with Angela on the phone from prison and shared his optimism of his release. He bluntly said, Meanwhile, Jan Roseboro is dead, and their children have to deal with it because of him. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.